We are starting today, though, talking about restaurants and the vaccine certificate. Many, many people getting used to having it ready, showing it at the door, showing a piece of identification to access restaurants, as well as some of the other venues and places where vaccine certificates are required. However, there was another rally this past weekend, this taking place outside of a restaurant in Hope, B.C., a restaurant that is continuing to defy B.C.'s vaccine passport. About 100 people gathered outside Rowley's restaurant on Saturday. Let's bring in Brad McLeod. He is the owner and managing partner at Sea Lovers Fish and Chips and has agreed to join us once again. Brad, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Jill. Glad to be here. Uh, What goes through your mind? What is your reaction when you see or hear about restaurants not only not buying into this, not going by the provincial health order when it comes to vaccine certificates, but openly defying the rule? Um, it, it's it's a hard one, Jill, for some places. In the lower mainland with the vaccination rates we have, I think you'd be hard-pressed for anyone to have a, a logical reason for not following the uh, passport program because the vaccination rate they are. In a town like Hope, um, I think they're making a mistake by doing it. But also, when you've only got vaccination rate of 50%, that means you're eliminating 50% of your potential customers. So. Right. It, it, it makes it hard, but the government needs to step up and be more specific with these rules and be more um, open about what's happening in regards to enforcement on them. Because I know enforcement is going on, but uh, the health departments and liquor, none of them publicize what's going on. Nothing happens. We don't know what's going on in the background of in regards to enforcement, what they're doing. Are they getting an order to shut down? Uh, this business or not, we don't know that. So we don't know what's happening out in the background because they don't tell us. And when you say, just to clarify, when you say they're making a mistake by doing it, are, you're talking about the restaurant, aren't you? The restaurant yeah. choosing. Yeah, I think they're okay. making a mistake by not following it in the long run. I think it's going to hurt them. Uh, but in a community where it's 50 percent, there's also you got to look at that as there's I don't think the government's done a good job in, in these outlying areas in promoting the vaccination and so on and so forth. So I I wouldn't want to be in that position, but I don't think not following the health orders. We must follow the health orders, and all of our locations do, and the majority of restaurants are. I think it's in the high 95 99% are following it, and we can't pick and choose which ones we want to follow. So... Um, and when you talk about that, too, it's an interesting point when we talk about the vaccination rates and the whole reason for the vaccine passport. And we've talked about this on the program before. It's not as though the only place we were seeing transmission of the virus or it was it was disproportionately happening in restaurants. It's not that the science shows us restaurants are dangerous, but it's more of inconveniencing people, isn't it? And making it so you don't get to go to these non-essential places and access these services unless you get the vaccine, which I think the, the the whole point was to maybe try and prod people, especially in some of these low vaccination areas, to get it. Yes, I believe you're exactly true with that, Joe. I, it, it, there was never any evidence where there was transmission in restaurants and that that was a problem. But for throughout this, with closing down of the dining rooms last spring and so on, I think restaurants have been used as a prod by the government to push the vaccination uh, when they're using other methods and that, and I think we were used more as that as a, if you're not vaccinated, you're not allowed to have this privilege per se. And, uh, I think that's what they're doing. And I don't 
I don't know if it's working or not. I don't see the statistics. They're not open with all these numbers and that, but I believe that's a big part of it. And when you get in a community where there's only 50%, you're going to get pushed back. Uh, when you talk about enforcement as well, do you know at any of your locations, have there been checks or have you had bylaw officers or any type of, of law enforcement or, or health officials checking to make sure that the rules are being followed? Uh, for this part, no. For the passport, not that I know of that I've been told of, but I think we've been quite open in the public that we are enforcing those rules. So I think they're more working on the complaint basis of that they're busy chasing down ones that they've got complaints against. Uh, that they're after sort of a thing in that regards. So, but over through the pandemic, we've had checks in all of our locations to make sure we had our vaccine plans in, in place and we were following all the protocols throughout it. But in regards to this passport program, I don't believe we've had any inspections. And how are things going as far as customers being ready to, to show you the vaccine passport and to show that and a piece of identification to get in? Are people being pretty OK with it or are you seeing are you seeing any pushback? We, we, we are. Uh, it's going smoother than we thought. What we're still surprised by is not so much pushback, but people that come to the door and are still surprised that they have to do it or mm. come to the door and don't have their passport or that, and they're, they act surprised that we're requiring it. And we're still kind of puzzled by that, that we're having to turn away business because people don't have it, even though they say they're vaccinated. They're not saying they're anti-vaxxers or whatever. They just have this thing like they didn't think they really needed it or not. I think the government needs to step up and do more um, promotion, more advertising, promoting uh, to get vaccinated other than press releases, other than Adrian Dix on the news at night and stuff. I think they need to do more commercials, social media, everything else to promote getting vaccinated and how the vaccine card program works. And that I've heard of people that don't know, didn't go to the Dairy Queen because they thought they needed a passport. Hmm. You don't need it. For, you don't need it for the Dairy Queen. You only need it with sit down service and bars and pubs and so on and so forth. So I still think there's lots of confusion out there. I mean, it's hard to believe in this day, but there seems to be a lot of confusion still out there. And I think the government could do a lot better job of communication. And I guess that that's what you're seeing as well. Like you said, if you see people still coming in that are, that are vaccinated, have no problem with that, but just didn't know or didn't realize what the requirement was, so there, there's clearly some kind of breakdown in communication there. Yes, my staff have become experts on the vaccine passport on how to load it onto your phone, helping customers load it because we don't want to turn away the business. So we're more than happy teaching people how to do it because it only takes a matter of minutes. And all of our staff are now trained on how to help a customer download it and get the passport up and ready to go. And then that, it's interesting you say that. I've actually seen restaurant staff do do that at other places as well, which makes sense if it's a question of you, you're going to turn somebody away or give them a couple minutes of IT help to get them what, what they need, then why not? Yes. I mean, our customers, we're in this, we're in the service industry. We're there. We want to serve customers. That's our goal. We want to have you come in, have a nice meal and enjoy your time. And if we need to help you download the app because you don't understand it, we're there to help you. But it's, it's, I think the government needs to do more on their end on how this is going to work and 
and get it out there to the public that they do need it. Uh, and Brad, one other thing, wanted to ask you about capacity. Are you hoping that there will be a change as far as capacity levels when it comes to restaurants? I know it's been an issue more in Ontario, but as we kind of wait here and see what stadiums are going to look like, if they're going to to up the capacity, if people are going to be shoulder to shoulder in other scenarios, doesn't it make sense that restaurants would also be able to bring back more capacity? Well, we are there now, Jill. We are able to, if as, as long as we can do our layouts properly and, and everything else and our plans are in place, we can go to full capacity. Restaurants since July have been able to go to full capacity. Okay. I thought there was still some yeah. issue with as far as there had to be plexiglass or how far the tables and that, that there were still some rules there. No, that, there was, that was implemented back in the Okanagan and stuff like that in certain areas where we had to go back to that. But no, in regards to overall, the capacities are back to where they should be. All right, Brad, always good to have you on the program. Thanks so much for making some time for us again today. Appreciate it. No problem. Anytime, Jill. Thanks. Well, we've talked a fair amount in these past few weeks about what are being called consistent delays, often when people call 911, and specifically when they're calling 911 and need an ambulance. And there have been some heartbreaking stories about those waits, not only on the phone lines, but then waiting for the ambulance to arrive as well. Joining me to talk more about a represent or a submission to the Special Committee on Reforming the Police Act and what could be done to make the system work better is Oliver Gruder-Andrew, who is the CEO of Ecom 911. Thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Can we talk a bit about the submission? And, and it goes into great lengths about what could be done as far as perhaps redeploying or different levels of police officers and, and what would make the system more streamlined. Before we get to that, though, what is the, the, what is the cause, do you think, at this point when people are calling and it's taking so long to be put through to get an ambulance? Well, we all know that there are unprecedentedly high volumes of calls asking for ambulance service. Uh, that's well established in communication around the province, and that's really at the root of the current issue. And how do we fix that, or how do we go about addressing that? I think in the near term, everybody is doing everything possible that can be done. We know the Ministry of Health has released additional funding available to BC Ambulance Service. BC Ambulance Service are recruiting additional call takers, dispatchers and paramedics as quickly as possible. These are obviously fairly complex jobs. The training is required. There is a delay in staffing them. But I know from my own dialogues with Ambulance Service that everything is being done to do the right thing and to deploy those resources. In one of the, the slides that was part of the submission, it's, it talks about enhanced 911 call triaging and intervention. What does that look like? Well, the submission to the uh, Special Committee on Reform and the Police Act was obviously done through the lens of uh, the mandate of that committee. And this particular section talked about the opportunity to broaden the services that could potentially be available through 911. So, for example, uh, including an enhanced mental health mental health crisis triage um, at the 911 level, which is more difficult to come by today through other services. There's also the concept of providing generally more um, triaging and possibly more uh, solution-oriented response from the people answering the first call, uh, who we sometimes refer to as the first first responders for good reason. And, that is generally the idea of what was submitted there. 
Uh, the numbers are quite, when you look at in total, uh, the numbers of calls, nearly 2 million calls from uh, the almost 5 million or roughly 5 million British Columbians served by ECOM every year. Uh, 65% of those calls transferred to police, 30 to ambulance and 5 to fire. Uh, when you look at those numbers, d- does that need to be addressed as well? Or is that, does that make sense that that's where the numbers, where the breakdown would be? Uh, That breakdown is fairly typical across jurisdictions, both within Canada and even internationally. So I would say that is generally to be expected. And when we talk about kind of uh, revamping the system, and I know in one of the one of the submissions or one part of the submission, uh, it was something. It's not an overnight fix. It's something that that could take years and could lead to to change in the system. What would you like to see, though? How do we even start with that? Well, what we said in our submission is that ECOM, at ECOM, because we look across the whole of the emergency communications, across police, fire and ambulance requests, we see an opportunity for um, some of the responsibilities to be lifted from local government to the provincial level. And that is uh, modeled in part on, again, what we've seen in some other jurisdictions, um, both within uh, Canada, but also internationally and in the United States. And there are some benefits from um, having a more consistent set of policies um, and being able to evolve the service. So, for example, as you would have seen in the materials we submitted, one of the concepts is that a additional emergency service uh, could be added into the uh, communication flow. So instead of asking just, do you need police, fire, ambulance, perhaps we would be able to ask, do you need police, fire, ambulance or mental health support? Um, and uh, to add the latter into the flow of emergency communication, many different decision points are involved today. Um, as we explained, that decisions are made between uh, the regional district level and the municipal government level. Clearly, such a change, which could benefit significant parts of the population, um, would be more effective made if there was a more central coordination and decision-making point around what some of those services could look like and how they could be accessed by the population. And, of course, to make sure that those services are accessible on an equitable basis. By that, I mean geographically equitable across the province all at the same time in the same way. Uh, th- those sounds like two two major or pretty major policy changes, but but things that could make a huge difference going to a more provincial level as far as uh, a more kind of central dispatch and, and having mental health as an option. Would you see that then as, say, a psychiatric nurse or, or a mental health worker that would be dispatched maybe with a first responder or with another team? Well, some of those solutions are already in place. Uh, for example, in uh, Vancouver, where I live, the Vancouver Police Department uh, operate a limited service of both a psychiatric nurse and a specially trained officer to go jointly to certain types of incidents. Uh, I think that model could probably be expanded, and there's been a lot of discussion around that uh, in, in British Columbia recently as well. Uh, and I do also think that there are examples from uh, other jurisdictions where you can see a first level of response to a crisis, a mental health crisis, to more of a telehealth kind of approach. So rather than to have a specially trained clinical practitioner appear on site in all cases, there are examples where resolution can be achieved, and de-escalation can be achieved through a telephone-based intervention in the first place. And that, of course, means there is an opportunity of connecting uh, the call for emergency support in a mental health crisis to 911 
with that kind of a service. There are some great examples about that. Uh, New Zealand is a country that has uh, built a solution around that, uh, and there are some examples across the United States as well. Plus, we now know that other Canadian police jurisdictions, police departments are looking into how to bring those kind of solutions to effect. And so if we look at something the specific, the recommendation to establish a provincial level authority for 911, how how long would it take, do you think, or what kind of timeline would we be looking at to be able to do that? Um, I can't really speculate on the timeline it would take. What I would say is that um, the sooner we can have agreement on that, if agreement is to be had, um, the better for all of us to move forward in that direction. And one other question about the people, because anybody who's had to call 911 knows that it's a a person that picks up, hopefully, that picks up the phone. Uh, People that answer the phones are often dealing with people who are extremely stressed out, who are in need of urgent care. If they're on the phone lines, if they're then waiting for the phone to be transferred in the case of transferring to an ambulance and and there's that delay, that's got to be difficult on the e-com call takers. How are they doing through all of this? Thank you for asking that, Joe. Our people are real troopers and very, very much committed to public safety. That's why they come to Ecom to work at Ecom. Um, however, the current circumstances are an exceptional strain, and I greatly fear for the well-being of our staff. Um, in part, why I'm pushing for change to the system is because at the moment when they are bottlenecks, those pains are felt by the people in the system, and that is across the system. Uh, that's felt by our staff at Ecom on the 911 side, our police dispatchers when there are long wait times to answer police calls. It's felt by BC Emergency Houses dispatchers who are our colleagues with whom we work arm in arm for public safety. It's felt by police officers and, of course, by nurses and uh, other healthcare providers in the healthcare system. So, looking at the system overall, to me, holds the promise of being able to. Uh, solve some of those problems without just moving the bottleneck from one place to another and put the burden on a different group of people. Right, because are you seeing, we've been, we've been hearing this from other sectors of people that are going on mental health leave and who are stressed out and taking uh, some form of leave. Are, are you seeing people as well that are in the position that are 911 call takers who are either leaving or facing a lot of burnout? Yes, 100%. Uh, we have unprecedentedly high numbers of staff going on uh, mental health, trauma, treatment-related leave. Um, We have um, a lot of people who are very vocal about the stress it puts on themselves that translates into their home life. Um, And I'm deeply concerned for our staff in that respect. I'm looking for ways to try and help solve that problem. And that can't be an easy fix. No, unfortunately it is not. All right, Oliver, we are going to leave it there for today. But thank you so much for taking the time and for talking to us this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jill. Have a good day. You too. Well, as you know, starting November 8th, people will be able to cross over the land border from Canada into the United States. A proof of vaccination will will be required. We know as of Friday, the news was updated to say those with mixed vaccination schedules will be considered fully vaccinated. A big sigh of relief for the millions of Canadians who got the mixed vaccinations. But... 
We also know, as of now, unless things change, when Canadians come back over the border and come back home, they will still have to provide a PCR test showing they are negative for COVID-19, even if they are fully vaccinated. So what safeguards are in place to make sure there's not some kind of abuse of the system? Well, that is what Global News journalist Richard Zussman is working on today, and he joins us now with more on that. Hey, Richard. Hey, Joe. How you doing? Very well. How about you? I'm doing great. I uh, noticed from your social media posts, I think you uh, got good use of your vaccine certificates these past <laughs> few days and got to see some sights and such. Yeah, we were in Vancouver over the weekend, uh, dropped the puck at the Coquitlam Express game, uh, which was really nice. A big thank you from the BCHL hockey team to all of us at uh, Global News uh, for all the work we've done during the pandemic. So that was really nice. And then at Science World uh, with our little guys on Saturday and at some restaurants. And yes, the vaccine card is very clearly working, uh, not just here in Victoria, but in Vancouver and everywhere else in this province. All right. So we've got that one. It seems like we figured that one out and a few glitches, but that one's figured out. I know you're working on a story today as well about this PCR test that is still going to be required for Canadians when coming back from the United States. Uh, Are there concerns then that people are going to find ways to get free tests here or find some ways to kind of uh, get find loopholes in the system? Yeah, so the big question I'm getting is, can you use one of the tests administered by the provincial government? So right now, there are certain requirements, and BC has had these requirements in place since the beginning. If you have certain symptoms, you should go and get tested. Only if you have those symptoms will you get tested. And then you get the results of that test, and it's to be used to know if you should isolate, uh, if you need to contact uh, provincial, if, if you do test positive provincial health, uh, the health authorities, the contact tracers will contact you so they can see who you've been in contact with. That's the way our system has worked. But now that these test results can be used to travel across a land border, I'm getting a lot of questions, Jill, about whether that somebody can do that. So if you want to travel to Bellingham to go shopping after November 8th, can you show up at a clinic and get a test in order to use that for travel. The only way that it would possibly work is you'd have to lie twice. You'd have to lie about your symptoms. If you do have symptoms, you would then have to lie to the question, are you using this test for travel? But there doesn't seem to be any stop guards in place in order to stop this loophole. So we're hoping to talk to Minister Adrian Dix at some point this afternoon to ask him specifically what the provincial government is going to do to ensure that people cannot use provincial testing capacity in order to travel for recreational reasons. Because it's obvious to me, and I'm sure obvious to you and the listener, that this could cause some really substantial problems to an already backlog testing system if all of a sudden hundreds if not thousands of people who want to bypass paying for a private test go through the provincial system lie in order to do that so they can travel because right now a test is at minimum two hundred dollars there are backlogs it's challenging yes you can get a pcr test done in bc go to blaine bellingham seattle for the day or up to 72 hours post test and come back and use that test result for re-entry but it could cause some real serious problems with our testing capacity. 
And so just to, to clarify what you're saying, so it, at this point then it comes down to if you're okay lying, as you said, you'd have to lie twice. Yeah. But other than you might feel bad about lying, there's no actual punishment or there's not some way that you could get outed and then face some kind of repercussions. So right now it doesn't look like it. And that's the question we'll pose to Minister Dix uh, in a few hours time, we hope, around what safeguards the province is putting in place. There could be a few different things they do, Jill. They could just send back a text message to anyone who receives their test results saying, your test is negative, you're all clear, without actually providing them the documentation around the test result. Having a text message from the government saying you're negative is not going to be good enough to get back into the country. That's one thing the province could do. It, it becomes more complicated when you start, you know, evaluating symptoms or uh, monitoring people post-test. The easiest way would be do not provide people their tangible physical results for the test post-government test because that is the documentation that can be used at the border to get back into Canada uh, because of the requirement. We know the United States is not imposing a requirement around testing. The Canadian government, as you mentioned, is steadfast in this, and we expect it will be in place for some time now, requiring anyone entering Canada to produce that negative PCR test. And when you talk as well about the the symptoms then that you would have to say you have to go and get tested at one of the, the government sites, is there not a rule, or I thought there was, but maybe not, that if you say, I've got these symptoms that qualifies you to get a test, are you not supposed to go and isolate until you get the test results? Yes. So that is the expectation, but you can't travel anyways until after you get those test results. So uh, you could isolate, and in some jurisdictions, the test results are coming back within the same day. Some day they're 24 to 48 hours. So yes, there could be an inconvenience there around requirement of isolation awaiting the test results. But with so many people working from home, they very easily could do that. And again, it comes down to people being deceitful. If they're going to lie and say, you know, I have symptoms, I need a test, or I'm not going to travel, I need a test, they may also be willing to, you know, deceive their way through not isolating. The province is at capacity when it comes to contact tracing, when it comes to testing, although we do have a little bit room on the testing side. So it would be stunning to think they are going to show up at someone's house post-test and say, hey, you're supposed to be isolating. But yes, you are legally required to continue to isolate until you get your test results if you do go and get a COVID-19 test. Hmm. And it will be interesting to see. I know I've heard from some people saying they don't anticipate that even though the border is opening up, there'll be a ton of people going south. I would agree maybe for the day trips because, again, unless you're going to be devious and try and, and work the system this way, it's pretty expensive if you have to get that test on a, a day trip or even an over one overnight trip. But that said, I know a lot of people who have gone ahead and booked trips, so whether it's going to Disneyland or going to California, elsewhere, going to Hawaii, saying it's just been so long since we've been able yep. to travel. We're going to eat the cost. We're going to add the cost on. Luckily, they're able to do that, but get the testing done uh, simply to get that vacation in. Yes, absolutely. And there's family reunification at play here, Jill. As you know, our communities are so interconnected. You know, Metro Vancouver with Whatcom County, even with Seattle, there are a lot of people who have loved ones on the other side of the border uh, who, you know, have not been able to see each other for nearly two years now. So there's going to be a lot of that and people will just eat the costs. There are legitimate reasons. And I, and I spoke to 
Guy Archie Grosso from the Bellingham Chamber of Commerce. And he mentioned that, you know, it may be if somebody needs to get this test legitimately and it comes back negative legitimately, maybe you then just use that test as well to support your travel. And, you know, you have the test result there. The test is done. It's negative. Why not go across the line and, and visit friends or go have a meal or go shopping like so many in Metro Vancouver like? So it's going, it's, it, there are some uh, areas of gray here that we will see how people exploit it. But I don't anticipate, as you mentioned, that there's going to be a flood of traffic, but there's enough demand. Like you'll remember, like on a busy Friday night or Saturday pre-COVID, you could wait two, three, four hours to cross that border if you didn't have Nexus. There has always been significant demand for Canadians to travel into the United States. And so some of that, no doubt, people will be willing to do a lot of things to go back to that normalcy, not just their trips you know, to Hawaii and to California and to Arizona, but just those trips across to do a bit of shopping or go to a sporting event. Well, we are taking a look at what could potentially be in store for a very special part of the city of Vancouver. And we're talking about the city's plans for false Creek South. And some of those plans have been put out, shared with the public. It has taken a long time to get to this point. And as you can imagine, there is a difference of opinion on whether or not the plans put forward to this point are good, will improve the area. There are also concerns about them. Let's bring in Patrick Condom, University of, Br- of British Columbia professor, also James Taylor, Chair in Landscape and Livable Environments. Patrick, great to have you back on the program. Hello, Jill. Uh, I read your piece. You've written about this. It's in the TIE. A lot of information about the plan. We won't be able to get to it all. But when we look at what's being proposed, can you talk a little bit about what that is and maybe what works? Well, um, uh, the uh, the article I did in the TIE was critical on a number of counts. One of them was the uh, the, the co-ops that are there. And, and a lot of the affordable rental will all be torn down, bulldozed. And those sites would be the sites for market rate rentals and market rate condos in the future. It's good that the uh, co-op residents will be uh, provided alternative housing, but the alternative housing is clustered uh, at the back of the site close to 6th Avenue, uh, basically on top of the corridor, which... Uh, was recently used for the Olympic line uh, streetcar. So that's another issue that uh, is is quite complicated and, and important. And then the th- third basic issue is that in the tripling of the density, most of the new density is going to be unaffordable. It's going to be uh, market rate condos, and it's going to be also, and we know how much they cost, and market rate rentals. And in that neighborhood, two-bedroom rental units are going for $4,000 so a month. So that won't be affordable. To, that'll only be affordable to the top 10% of income earners in the city of Vancouver. What is it about that area, do you think, that makes it special or makes it where it has been in the past the envy? Well, you know, I'm in, I'm in urban design, and uh, I've known for most of my life about Falls Creek South that it's a paragon and probably North America's most successful design uh, for integrating all strata 
of uh, incomes, both the poor, the middle class, and the upper upper middle class and the wealthy were all incorporated into the original design intentionally. And when you walk around there, you cannot tell the difference between the social housing and the and the market condos. Plus, it's it's extremely green, so it's a resource for the rest of the of the city that they can take advantage of along the seawalls and uh, the uh, and, and the, the major park spaces and the commercial areas that are part of it in its association with Granville Island. And the last thing I'll mention that's quite unique about it is the nature of those housing, what's called housing clusters, where the res, where they're basically formed in a donut sh- in a donut shape. Many people uh, have have uh, noticed that, and uh, that allows uh, families with children to let their children play in the middle of that ring of community, and they'd be very safe. It's a, in other words, it's a wonderful place to uh, raise a family. And the replacement uh, uh, types of housing that they anticipate would not have those characteristics. Is it a, an example, then, uh, of a city that is facing an affordability crisis, that is dealing with a lack of supply, that while it's beautiful and what you just described is so wonderful for families, that there just isn't the space to continue that kind of model. And that's why this has been put forward that's really talking about density and in some parts of this area going much higher than buildings have ever gone there before. Yes, the uh, actually the uh, the neighborhood association there put forth a document called Replan, which uh, also included a doubling of the density, taking advantage of the spots such as where the parking garage is, and the area around the Olympic the Olympic uh, Village Station of the SkyTrain line, uh, taking advantage of those areas and adding enough density to double the density there. And their proposal was that all of that would be affordable. And it's worth, it's worth mentioning to your listeners that because the city owns the land, they can, they can quite easily construct uh, new affordable buildings, which would be paid for in the same way that the original co-ops were paid for, which was by the rents, by affordable rents from average middle-class people that would be enough income to to pay for the construction and maintenance costs. It's the land cost that is the issue in the rest of the city. So given that the city owns all that land, they could have easily much increased the, the proportion of affordable housing units there, even in a doubling of density. Right. But I would imagine then one of the arguments against that would be it wouldn't be as lucrative for the city. Well, that's probably the argument. The argument of the real estate department and the city is uh, is is very much uh, uh, dominated, I would say, by what they call their fiduciary responsibility to the taxpayers. So, whenever a situation is encountered, the re- the response is always, "Well, we have no option but to extract the maximum amount of money possible." But that strategy is exactly what is forcing people average wage earners out of the city. And for me, that constitutes an existential crisis for the city. If no one can afford to live here, particularly the people who we need as our service workers, some of whom are are, are our own sons and daughters, then that constitutes an existential crisis that government has a responsibility to do whatever they can to ameliorate. 
You talked as well in the article or, or made mention of the, the, the kind of key difference here or one of the things that stood out to you was that it wasn't so much the planning department that was behind this. It was the city's real estate department kind of driving the bus. Why is that an important fact? Well, the, the planning department has a broader set of obligations in terms of what their responsibilities are to the citizen that go beyond their so-called fiduciary responsibility. The real estate department, under its mandates, was set up a long time ago to, to protect and, and expand what they call the trust fund for the city. So they're, they're always going to take the position that will maximize uh, the, the return to the coffers of City Hall. However, uh, in this case, as I've mentioned, it doesn't seem to be a broadly based understanding of what might be in the best interests of the city. If, if you agree that our major problem now is, is not too little uh, construction of unaffordable housing, which is what the real estate department would opt for, but rather the, 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 the egregious lack of affordable housing, which South, Falls Creek South provides us an opportunity not to contract but to expand. Right. And just one other point is something that you mentioned before. And anybody that, that's been in that area, Falls Creek South, knows about uh, the, the co-op buildings. And there are so many of them right on the water, again, on, on city-owned land, on, on leasehold properties. Moving the, the co-op buildings, the new co-op buildings, back to 6th Avenue, uh, creating more density there. While it's not waterfront, it's still a pretty amazing part of the city. Isn't that kind of a good compromise? I don't know what uh, what others would say. I would not. I would say it very much defies the original intention of False Creek South as a model. The model there was that you would not be able to distinguish between where the poor people lived and where the rich people lived. They were all uh, organized in a way that that distinction was not made clear. But in this new model, that would be very very clear. All right. Well, Patrick, we'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time for today. But thanks so much. Uh, It's a very interesting read uh, and interesting take on this. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Bye-bye. Following up on a story you just heard on the news, Grouse Mountain announcing earlier today there will be a requirement of a proof of vaccination for people visiting that uh, ski mountain as well as staff come this uh, the upcoming season. So let's bring in Melissa Taylor, communications manager with Grouse Mountain, to talk a little bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, it's good to speak with you. Uh, so this sounds like a, kind of a, a blanket ban as far as accessing Grouse Mountain. What are things going to look like? So we are requiring all guests who were born in 2009 or earlier to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 for the 2021-22 winter season. This will begin on opening day of the ski and snowboard season. They will be required to show proof of vaccination to access the resort, which includes the sky ride, mountaintop facilities, and activities. So when you say provide proof of vaccination, are you talking about the QR code, the BC vaccination certificate? Yes. So guests will be required to show their BC vaccine card as well uh, for anyone who is over the age of 19, a copy of valid government photo ID. And we're encouraging all of our pass holders to take advantage of our VaxTrax program. And this is a one-time vaccine verification process for pass holders. So once they've been verified by our team, they'll be able to visit the resort without having to show that proof of vaccination each visit. 
And so making it a bit easier or streamlined, and hopefully I would imagine by doing that, cutting down on what could otherwise maybe lead to some longer lines or that kind of thing? Absolutely. We're encouraging people to take advantage of this program before November 15th. Uh, They're able to submit this information digitally, or they can come visit guest services at the base of the mountain prior to November 15th to have their documentation verified in person. Uh, I know some other uh, ski destinations are following the provincial guidelines as far as if you're going inside to a restaurant or something where you would need a vaccination certificate, but haven't gone so far as to require it for being outdoors or even skiing or snowboarding on the mountain. Why was the decision made at Grouse Mountain to take that extra step? So throughout the pandemic, we have exceeded provincial health requirements to ensure the safety and well-being of our guests and team members. We believe that by implementing this policy over the winter season, we'll provide the strongest protection against COVID-19 to those who visit and work at the mountain while allowing us to return to our regular operating capacity. Uh, You mentioned as well mask wearing. So what will the policy be then as far as masks? Yes, so masks will be required for access to all indoor public spaces as well as on the sky ride for the 21-22 winter season as well. So on the sky ride, what about when you're actually physically going down the mountain? Currently, our policy states that masks are only to be worn on the sky ride and when accessing indoor facilities, not when you're actually skiing or boarding on the mountain. Which I think will be welcome news with people uh, trying to be safe and taking all of these measures. But I would imagine when you're actually going down the mountain, especially since so many people are wearing helmets now as well, uh, that might be it might even make um, breathing a little difficult or would be a little bit uh, might be too much. Yeah, we're following the public health recommendations on this, and we truly believe that masks are uh, a great protection against the virus in those indoor spaces and on our sky rides. Are you anticipating any uh, more rules, or will things look different as far as how many people can be in, say, in the lineup or, or on the sky ride? Do you have to think about capacity at all, or is that pretty well back to how it was before? So implementing this policy will actually allow us to return to our regular capacity, we hope, for this season. Which is good news then. So people, it's not as though you'd have to count how many or people have to make a reservation system. They can just kind of go and ski or snowboard on a whim? Yes, at this time we are not moving ahead with a reservation system for the season. Was there a reservation system last year? There was. What were the challenges with that? I think with anything, you know, we'd like to move forward being able to have guests visit the mountain freely without having to really schedule their time. Uh, So we believe, again, implementing this policy will allow us to return to those operating levels that people were used to prior to COVID. Are you concerned at all? We're we're hearing some of this with restaurants and, and not people who are opposed to vaccination, but seem to be more opposed to the program and the requirement of showing that vaccination certificate. Are you are you concerned at all that there might be a group or a number of people who who simply won't go because, again, they may be fully vaccinated, but don't like any kind of system where that proof of documentation is required? Since we've made this announcement, the feedback we've received has been overwhelmingly positive from our pass holders and our staff. Understandably, there will be people who may disagree with this, and uh, those pass holders do have the option to defer or have their pass refunded for the season. Uh, So they could get a full refund if wanted? Yes, there's more information for anyone who's interested on our website at grousemountain.com slash vaxtrax, that's V-A-X-T-R-A-X. 
And uh, what about, I know, I understand that Grouse Mountain is is a free uh, resort ski hill on its own, but are you hearing anything from other resorts or other mountains that they plan on doing anything similar? I can't speak for any other ski resorts, but I know we felt that this was the best decision for our resort. And again, asking then that that this be in place, or you're asking uh, to digitally uh, for uh, pass holders or people coming there to get that in place uh, by mid-November. Is there a deadline then or or how long does it take, do you think, for people then to be part, to to make sure that they're part and it's working well being in the VaxTrax program? Yeah, so we're encouraging, um, again, people to submit their information, whether it be online or in person at guest services before uh, November 15th, uh, just so we can have that information processed prior to the start of the season. Uh, If people are unable to have that information to us by then, they will be able to provide proof of vaccination upon their first visit to the mountain. And and just to be clear as well, this is for all uh, all of the facilities that are on the mountain. I know we tend to focus and say skiing and snowboarding, but I know there are other trails and the, and things on grouse. Is this for anybody accessing anything on the resort? Yes, anyone who may be hiking as well and wanting to access our mountaintop facilities or the sky ride back down will be required to show proof of vaccination. All right. Well, Melissa, thanks so much for joining us and bringing us up to date on this. My guess is we'll probably be hearing similar uh, from other winter resorts and such. But thanks so much for joining us with the very latest on this. Thank you. That is Melissa Taylor, Communications Manager with Grouse Mountain. Again, Grouse Mountain earlier today announcing that it will require all guests to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19. That is for the upcoming 2021-22 winter season that starts on opening day of the ski and snowboard season. Anybody born in 2009 or earlier must provide proof of vaccination to access the resort. And that's anything on the resort, the sky ride, any of the facilities facilities, the mountaintop facilities, the activities as well, and employees at Grouse Mountain will also be required to be fully vaccinated for the winter season.